Hey, it's Amber, and I want to make sure you are aware of all the resources we have at Time of Grace to help you grow your faith. From our TV program with Pastor Mike Novotny to devotions, Grace Talk videos, our blog, and countless books, we want to encourage you to stay close to God. Just go to timeofgrace.org to sign up for our daily email. And now, here's today's episode. Today, we are continuing our series titled, There's So Much More to the Story. Last week, if you missed it, you might want to go back because that was episode one in this series. That's where the stage was set. We are introduced to Xerxes, what was going on in his kingdom at the time. Today, we're moving forward with an episode that I'm titling, When the Darkness Gets Real. Hey guys, it's Amber, wife, mother, warrior, type A child of God. Here at Little Things, we examine everyday issues from a biblical perspective with one simple goal, to know and love God more. Thanks for joining me. Now, in truth, darker days were coming, but for Mordecai and Esther, this was the beginning. And we're going to we're going to talk about that. I'm going to explain that further. So let's just get right into it. First of all, you need to know that 4 years have passed between the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. And these were not good years for Xerxes. He went to war with Greece. It did not go well, but not just because of his military endeavors. So he went according to Herodotus, he went with somebody called Amestris. And there's a good possibility that this is actually Queen Vashti. Don't ask how it happened. I don't know. The bottom line is the People's Bible shows the way that they could have been related and why that might be. You know, even um, Esther. Esther was Persian, uh, the Persian name for Esther. She had a different name, Hadassah, which was her Hebrew name. So Amestris may have been Vashti and they had different names. And I don't know, they left the country together But things really didn't go well, mostly because Xerxes decided to seduce his brother's wife. Didn't go well, failed, and so he seduced her daughter, who happened to be married to Xerxes' son. Well, rumor has it that when Vashti found out, she mutilated the girl. So things got really out of hand. And by the time Xerxes got back to his kingdom, it may have been a really magnificent mess. So at the beginning of chapter two, his fury has subsided with Vashti. He remembered what she had done and what he had decreed about her. And there, there's just a hint of maybe regret, possibly remorse. But if a whole lot of this had gone on behind the scenes in Greece, he might just be remember it with, with with relief that Vashti isn't his queen anymore. So not sure, but we're going to move forward. At this point, the king's personal attendants have a proposition for him. They said, hey, let's appoint commissioners throughout the land to bring the young, beautiful women here, put them in your Herod, and then you can find somebody to be queen instead of Vashti. And this sounded like a great idea to the king. So at this point, all of a sudden, the narrative is cut off because the author of the book of Esther wants us to make sure that we know that there's this man called Mordecai. 
And he was the great grandson of somebody who was taken captive, gone with the people, the Jews who were taken to Babylon. So Mordecai has a cousin that was named Hadassah, but also Esther. And she was orphaned at some point. And so Mordecai brought this beautiful young lady up as his own daughter. So it's like, first you hear of what's going on in the palace. And then as an aside, hey, by the way, there's this Jew. And his great grandpa was taken captive. And then he brought up his young cousin who didn't have father or mother. Oh, and by the way, she had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Now, the Bible does not use those words like excessively. If we're told that someone is beautiful, or in this case, it's not just that she was beautiful, but she had a lovely figure. I mean, there's, take it seriously. She was phenomenal. So then we're, we're told that many young women were taken and brought to the Citadel of Susa. The Citadel of Susa is the military fortress or the palace. So Josephus, the historian, says that about 400 young virgins were brought to Susa and placed under the care of Haggai. Now, who is Haggai? Haggai is the king's eunuch. Eunuchs were men who had been castrated so that they could not have sex with the women who were in the king's harem. And they were also, according to the People's Bible, shrewd politicians. So these weren't just, you know guys that Xerxes picked up off the street because they didn't have anything else going on. These were guys who knew what was going on and they leveraged their power to sort of get their way and also raise up who they wanted to or put down who they wanted to, which is interesting because we're told right off the bat that Esther won Haggai's favor. And he provided her special treatments, he gave her special attendance, and he put her in a special place. Now, we're also given another little aside, and that little aside is that Mordecai forbid Esther to tell anybody that she was a Jew. And every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out what was happening with Esther. Two things about this. First of all, we know that Mordecai has a very high position in the king's service because of the fact that he was allowed to be near the courtyard. Okay. The king wouldn't let just anybody near his harem. So the fact that Mordecai had had access really shows that he was a man of privilege. So he had, you know, he had the right credentials to get near Esther. So this wasn't, again, just some Jew from somewhere. He was in high places. He had a very good position. He was in the king's service. Otherwise, he wouldn't have had access. He wouldn't have been anywhere near this. The other thing about this that is interesting is that note that when Daniel was taken captive, he made his Jewish, you know, nationality a thing. Not just not just Daniel, but Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So right away when they're taken captive, 
they go to the man, the attendant in charge of the food, and they're, they said, you know, this isn't going to work for us. We really don't want to eat all this stuff. We don't want to defile ourselves. So if you don't mind, we'd like to just have, you know, the grains, the fruits, the vegetables, and and water instead of all this other, you know, the wine and the, you know, rich food. And the attendant was very empathetic, but he's like, you know, I can't have you going around looking worse than everybody else or the king's going to have my head. And so Daniel said, well, just test us. And because of this, because they looked healthier than other other men after 10 days, he was allowed to do whatever he wanted, to eat what he wanted, and to stay away from the foods that would be defiling to him as a Jew. So just the opposite has happened with Esther. So Mordecai forbid her to tell anybody that she was a Jew, which meant that she would have to sort of abide by whatever was given to her. You know, she couldn't make a big deal about what she should be eating or what she didn't want to eat or why she didn't want to eat something. So she sort of had to hide and this would definitely affect her day to day. The other thing is we see like in Daniel chapter six, Daniel is praying three times a day and that's how the people in the government who wanted to frame him, that's how they actually were able to because he made prayer time, you know, a really important time of his day. So again, Esther would have had to just ignore her Jewish roots and act like everybody else. And some people find this as a reason to sort of judge Esther as in, well, was she really all that committed? Because look at what she did. She she would have lived like everybody else. If Haggai didn't know that she was a Jew, you know, how into her Jewish roots was she, you know, was she very religious at all? And to that, I would say this, there is a huge, huge difference between Daniel's role and Esther's. So Daniel very quickly rose up the ranks and he became, you know, he in charge of people and he was put in high places. He was given this aptitude for learning and God really allowed him to win favor because he was able to interpret the king's dream. And so he was put in high places. His friends were put in high places and that allowed them to sort of do their thing without people coming down on them. Esther was a young woman and she was in the king's harem. Just think about that for a minute. Think about who Xerxes was. Think about how he felt about people who came to him wanting an exemption. Think about Xerxes being self-centered. And do you think he's really the type of person that would make exception for anybody? I don't think so. And I think Mordecai clearly had his, you know, finger on the pulse here. And he was just saying, look, (laughs) you're, you're being taken or if you get taken or when she got taken, he was just like, do not let anybody know that you're a Jew. Just blend in. Don't draw attention to yourself. Probably so she would survive. So there's that. So then we're told what happened when after the women were taken. So they were given six months of treatment with oil of myrrh and six months of treatments with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is where I think people get the idea that this was a really cushy, glorious, wonderful thing to be taken and put in this harem. And people 
just sort of picture it as living in a spa. Like, can you imagine just getting massages and pedicures and manicures and potions put on you and the latest, you know, oils and perfumes and cosmetics and making these beautiful women even more beautiful, even more wonderful. Okay, to that, I have to say this. Read on, because this is what happened. When the woman went to the king, she was allowed to take anything with her from the harem. So I assume that means clothes, jewels, necklaces, shoes, whatever. She went to the king in the evening, and in the morning, she didn't return to the harem where she had left. She went to another part of the harem, the place where the concubines were kept. Do you know what that means? Something changed overnight. And that something was, she didn't return as a virgin. She went from being a virgin to a concubine. The king had his way with her. He tried her out, and then she was put in a place in the harem where she would not return to the king unless he summoned her by name. Okay? Understand this. 12 months of beauty treatments, one night with the king. In that time, he would decide your fate for life. You may go back to him to be used by him again, or you may live in the harem, untouched by him or anybody else for the rest of your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I just have tried to put myself in this situation as a young girl of, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. I don't know how old they were. I didn't get a good idea from reading the different things that I read. This is your first sexual experience. It's with a king who has been with many women, who has banished his wife, who has tried to seduce his brother's wife, has had an affair with his son's wife. And this is him judging you based on one sexual experience. It's a one night stand. A one night stand, according to Wikipedia, is a single sexual encounter in which there is an expectation that there should be no further relations between the sexual participants. The practice can be described as sexual activity without emotional commitment or future future involvement. Do you think any of these women wanted this? Do you think a young Hebrew lady wanted this? And look at what they had to look forward to. Maybe they would get pregnant the first time around and they would have a child. Otherwise, they could quite honestly live a life of loneliness, of not having a child, of not being called upon again. 
What do you think their hopes and dreams were prior to being taken to the palace? Think of these young girls just sort of being confiscated out of nowhere. Just all of a sudden, there was a rule. There was a mandate. And it changed everything. It changed families. Think of these young girls who were taken from these families. Think of the young girls who may have been promised to another man or who at least thought about getting married and having a family. And those dreams were suddenly shattered. And this is where they were put. So with that as the background, we learned that when the turn came for Esther to go, she didn't figure out what she was going to do herself. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, suggested. And she won the favor of everyone, including Xerxes. And so he made her queen in place of Queen Vashti. So all of a sudden, here we are. Mordecai's young cousin, taken from her home, a year of beauty treatments, taken to the king, suddenly queen. Now, Mordecai knew, no doubt, what had happened to Queen Vashti. How do you think he felt about his cousin being in that predicament? How do you think he felt about her being the next queen, knowing that Xerxes could issue any order, knowing that the nobles could come together to discuss Esther's actions, to discuss anything that she does or doesn't do. Yeah, well, we hear that Mordecai came and checked on her daily. No doubt, Mordecai spent a great deal of time praying. And no doubt, he had to have wondered what in the world was God's plan. Well, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate one time. At the end of chapter two, we find out that he overheard two men discussing their plans to assassinate King Xerxes. So he told Queen Esther and she reported it to Xerxes. And she gave credit to Mordecai for uncovering this. She didn't go to the king and say, hey, by the way, guess what? I found this out. No, she was like, Mordecai, this man Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot. It was investigated. It was found to be true. The two men were killed. And this all was recorded in the history books of the king. And this is going to be super important later on. Now, Dr. James Dobson said once, I remember hearing him say this years and years and years ago, 15 15 or more years ago, I was listening to a Focus on the Family, and he said there are two types of people in this world. There are those who are suffering now, and there are those who will suffer. Because we live in a fallen world, where sin has unfortunately touched everything There's no part of nature, there's no part of man, there's no humanity that hasn't been touched by sin. And because we live in this world, suffering is a part of of our existence. 
And there are those people who are suffering right now who are going through these very dark times. There are people who are just getting out of a very dark time. There are people who are just days or weeks or months away from going into the darkest episode they have ever been in in their life. They don't even know what's coming around the corner. And that is how I have to say this all came about with Esther and Mordecai. Vashti was banished. The king goes to war. He comes back. All of a sudden, there's an edict. It mandates that these young women are to be taken. Esther's taken. Then there's a lull of a year where you think, what's going to happen? What's her fate? Where's she going to go? And then out of nowhere, she's chosen to be queen. And Mordecai must have just been beside himself. But praying, I'm sure he's been praying because of the man that he is and what happens later on and his reaction to what happens later on. Now, I just want to remind you of 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where the Apostle Paul tells us that we walk by faith, not by sight. How do we get through our dark times? How do we get through when things go from bad to worse and we're thinking, uh, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. You walk by faith, not by sight. You have to quit looking at the circumstances around you and fix your eyes on Jesus. It's like Peter stepping out of that boat. The wind and the waves were there. And as long as he kept focused on Jesus, he was walking on the waves. The second he started paying attention to what was going on around him, he sunk. And that's what will happen to all of us too. So if you are in the middle of the storm right now, and the darkness is all too real, you need to hold on. And you need to have the faith to know that God is sovereign. God sees you. He knows you. And this isn't taking him off guard. Someone once said that every single thing that comes into your life has to be filtered through God's hand first. Just think about that. Think about that with Job. Satan didn't just strike out on his own and God was up in heaven going, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Everything went through God first. Whatever you're going through, God knows about it. He sees you. He's watching. He's intimately involved in the situation. He's providing in ways you sometimes don't even see. It's through that friend. It's through a message. It's through a meal. It's through a card. It's through a text. It's through the song on the radio, a sermon, some way. And you know, I've often realized much later. I'm pretty oblivious when I'm going through dark times, but later on when I look back, I see how God may not have been given me, giving me exactly what I was asking of him, but a lot of times he was giving me strength to endure, people to walk alongside of me. He was giving me just enough, just enough to get through each day and to get through the next and to get through the next and to get through the next. So if you can't see, if the darkness is very real, 
just know that God is there. You're not alone in the darkness. He's there, he sees you, he knows, and he is working on your behalf even now. Come back again next week. There's more to the story. There's so much more to the story. This has been Little Things because in God's kingdom, the little things are the big things. Thanks for listening to Little Things today. I know that there are so many things that you could listen to, so I don't take it for granted that you are here listening to me now. I want to listen to you. If you have any feedback or suggestions, if there's topics that you'd like to see me cover, or if you'd just like to say hi, go ahead and drop me an email at amber at timeofgrace.org.